All right. Well, I am not Jake Dietrich. You guys can be praying for Jake Dietrich. He is preaching today at Faith Bible Church Marietta, which is our sending church. And for the next six weeks, actually, you'll either see myself or Danny Salcedo in the pulpit. You guys know this about Faith Bible Church Menifee. We love to have kids here. And so Lauren Dietrich is pregnant with their sixth child, and they're getting ready to give birth probably in the next couple weeks. So for the next six weeks, as elders, we've decided to give Jake some time off so that he can be with his bride and welcome in the newest addition to their home. So we're going to be preaching, Salcedo and I, for the next six weeks. Danny's going to be working through the Sermon on the Mount. I've been done preaching on the attributes of God, and now I want to look at a text that is really crucial. It's Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 25. And I just want to tell you from the very beginning that today will kind of be an introduction to that passage. It's going to feel a little bit incomplete, and that's on purpose, that's on design, and it's because we're going to look at the first half of that portion, the half of that portion that condemns us all before God. And this is really important. You know, I, I don't know if you know this about me. I think some of you do, but I was raised a Catholic. Uh, I grew up in a Catholic home. I grew up going to church, primarily on holidays. I, I, you could think of me like a priester at Christmas and Easter. Uh, we were faithful to be there on Christmas and Easter. But, you know, as a Catholic, I went through First Holy Communion. I went to confirmation, and if you're not familiar with this, confirmation are classes that you go through. You're supposed to do them when you're in high school, but I went through them my early college years. And this is the time when you really learn about the foundations of your faith. And for the very first time, you're accepting the Catholic faith, and you're going to trust in the gospel, if you will. And so I went through all these classes, and at the end of it, you know, I didn't really know anything about God. I always believed that God existed. And I always said, hey, I love God. But I didn't know anything about God. In fact, I remember going through all those classes, and the one thing that I remember out of all those classes was, if I don't baptize my kids and they die, their blood is on my hands. I think I remember that because that like struck fear in my heart. But it didn't tell me about who God was. And so I came to this realization one day, just deep in sin, that I say I love God, but I have no understanding of who He is. And so I did what just seemed logical at that point. I went and grabbed a Bible and started reading through it. Grabbed the King James Version, because as a good Catholic, that made sense. right? And I'm reading through Matthew and Romans, and I have no idea what I'm reading. And I started going to church. And I started on this journey to try and figure out who God is. And you know, over the last two decades or so, I realize theology matters. You see, theology is the study of God. And the study of God matters because it tells us who God is. It gives us an understanding of the character and nature and the attributes and the person of God. And without that, to just simply say, I'm a Christian, I love God, or I believe in God, really fell short. right? If I, I said I'm a husband and I, I love my bride... And you go, well, tell me about your bride. Mm, she's tall. She's got blonde hair, I think. Right? You think like, come on, man. You really, you really love your bride? You can't even describe some of the most basic things about who your God is? You see, we say we love God, but do we know who that God truly is? And I think we sit in good teaching a lot of us have grown up in the church. We understand theology. 
But my fear is this, that sometimes we face a great danger. And that danger is the nine inches between our minds and our hearts. You see, we understand who God is, but it never goes down into our hearts. It never impacts our hearts. You see, it's not for a lack of knowledge that people go to hell. It's for a lack of love in God. And and to prove this, just think of James chapter 2. The demons believe. Man, they have a greater knowledge of God than I possess. A greater knowledge of God than you possess. Are they saved? No. It's not for a lack of knowledge. It's because they don't love God. They love self. And church, it is my fear that as we wrestle with theology, that that theology never impacts our hearts. And it stops many of us from ever coming to a true saving knowledge of Christ. A true saving knowledge of salvation. But even more than that, we sit in the pews and we are good, faithful Christians on Sundays. And then Monday through Saturdays we go and we live like the rest of the world. And your life looks no different than your unbelieving neighbor. You know why? That theology has not impacted your hearts. It's just simply head knowledge. And so for the past year, I've been preaching through the attributes of God. And it's been my prayer throughout all of that, though I have fallen short in this, is to put God on display and say, Christian, look. Look how magnificent your God is. Look how amazing He is. Look how our God is holy, holy, holy. That our God is immutable. He does not change. That our God is omniscient, omnipresent, that He is everywhere at all times, and He possesses all power and all strength. And church, it has been my prayer that as you've seen God lifted high and up through those messages, that it would do something, not to just your mind, but your heart. That it would stir in you a desire to want to love Him more, to pursue Him more. And as I've finished that, thought, what next? What can I preach on next? There is no greater message than we need to hear than the message of the gospel. It is the gospel that stirs our hearts to love Him. It is the gospel that stirs our hearts to love Him more with all our heart, mind, and soul. And we know the gospel, right? And we know it's Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But I want to get deeper into the gospel. I want to truly understand our sin for which our Savior died for. And I I want to look at the implications of what it means that He died for us. That we are justified. That He is our propitiation. And it is my hope and my prayer that as we look at this text, that it would stir in you a desire to want to pursue Him more. That is my mission. That is my goal. I want to draw your attention to Romans 3, 9 through 25. And my prayer is that it will give us a greater desire. And not just a desire, but an ability. I don't know if you realize this, and I'll unpack this more. But it is the gospel that empowers you to put to death your sin. It is the gospel that, that gives you the ability to walk in holiness. And I pray not just a desire and ability, but that we would honestly pursue God with all our heart, mind, and soul. Not just on Sundays as we gather with the saints, 
but throughout the week and every day of our lives. So to that end, will you guys join me in prayer? Father, we come before you and we thank you that we are able to gather on a Sunday and that we are able to hear the preaching of your word. We thank you that your word is powerful, that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, that your word pierces the hearts and minds of your people, that it exposes the thoughts and intentions, that it exposes our sin. Father, I pray that you would help me today, that my words would not simply be my words, but that it would be your words that would be proclaimed, and that it would impact every heart here, mine included, that it would give us a greater desire to want to pursue you with all our heart, mind, and soul. Father, I pray that you'd guide my tongue today to say the things that would honor you and the things that would feed your people. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. So as I said, the text is going to be Romans 3, verses 9 through 25. But before we get there, I kind of want to lay down a little bit of context. right? We studied the book of Romans, but it's still been a little while, so I just want to refresh your memory. So first, I just want you guys to realize that as you open up the book of Romans... The whole theme of Romans is the righteousness of God and salvation. Or better yet, we could say that the whole idea of Romans is the gospel. It's the good news that God saves sinners. And we could see this, if you guys have your Bibles open, turn back a page to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is Paul writing. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, speaking of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And churches, we come to this, Martin Luther understood this years ago, and we understand that this is good news for us. Because the question that faces every one of us is, how can a sinful man stand before God? How can sinful man stand before God? We can't. And so Martin Luther worked his body to the bone to try to become righteous, to fabricate some type of righteousness. And as he opened up the book of Romans and started teaching from it, this passage pierced his heart and realized that the righteousness of God is revealed. It is given by faith through the gospel. And But the question as we read that, we, we have to ask ourselves, but what is the gospel? Simply put, it's good news. That's what the word means. Gospel means good news. And it's most basic, the good news is this. Jesus lived a perfect life. That he died a criminal's death on the cross. And that he was buried and three days later rose again. And he did this for sinners. Church, at his most basic At a Sunday school level where I pray all our kids as they attend Sunday school, they're learning this. This is the gospel. But you know what? There's so much more. You know, the Puritans would say that the gospel is like a multifaceted diamond. 
Some of you got big diamonds on your fingers. Some of you are looking and going, not me, babe. What's going on here? Step it up. But you're all familiar with the diamond, right? It's got different sides, different angles. And as you turn that diamond around and the light hits it from different sides, it reflects a different beauty. It has a different image, a different splendor in it. It causes a different awe as you look at that diamond and you see the light reflected. Church, the gospel is like that. It's much deeper than simply Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection for sinners. The gospel is a diamond that we should behold. A, A diamond that we should delve into, that we should look at, that we should stare at, that we should meditate on, that we should behold its beauty. And I'm convinced of this, that most of our problems in life are because of this. Because we listen to ourselves, complain, and grumble, and think about all of our problems. Woe is me! And we fail to preach the gospel to ourselves. We fail to look at the gospel, to marvel at its beauty. And I think the problem is this. We treat the gospel as like it's simply a movie ticket. Some of you all love the movies, right? Jason's nodding his head. We know you love the movies, man. <laughs> you love the movies. When you walk into the movies, you got your ticket out, right? And you hand it to the guy, and what does he do? He tears it in half, right? Partially tear it, Jason? Oh, you're digital. I'm sorry. Okay, that's why you're the deacon. He tears my ticket. And then what I do with that ticket? Man, who cares what you do with that ticket? You're in the movie theater. Half the time, it goes buried in my pocket, under the keys, under that pile of lint. Half the time, I just throw them in the trash as I'm walking into the bathroom because I don't want them in my pocket. But it doesn't matter because I'm in the movie theater. And a lot of times, we treat the gospel like it's our movie ticket, like it's our ticket into the club of Christianity. We go, man, I got the gospel. I'm in. And we leave it. We bury it. We toss in the trash. We stop meditating on the beauty of the gospel. We stop thinking deeply about the gospel. And we think that the gospel is just for our unbelieving neighbors. And we fail to realize that the gospel is for us. And that's exactly what we see. If you guys are still in Romans 1... Look at verse 14. Paul says this, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Question, who's in Rome? It's an open book, you, you can yell it out. The Greeks? The barbarians? Our unbelieving neighbors? This is who Paul wants to preach the gospel to, right? It's the Greeks, it's our barbarians, it's the ones that have no understanding of who Jesus Christ is. But there's more people who are in Rome. Look up at verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So who's in Rome? Both unbelievers and believers. And it is Paul's desire to go to Rome. Why? Because he wants to preach the gospel. 
And you got to see this. He wants to preach the gospel both to the unbelievers, the Greeks and the barbarians, and to those who are saints, called by God. Why does he want to preach the gospel? It's because it is the power of salvation. It's the power of salvation from the penalty of sin. The gospel is the power of salvation, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin in your life. And saint, one day when you stand before God as a righteous person, it's not because of your own righteousness. It's because the gospel is the power of salvation to save you from the presence of sin. So that as you stand before God, you stand before Him as holy, perfect, and righteous. And church, what you have to understand is that as long as you are in this body, you struggle with sin. Day in and day out, you struggle with sin. Every morning you wake up, you wake up into a fight. Who are you going to live for? Yourself or for Him? You wake up struggling against sin. And sometimes that sin might be those little ones who are after you. But you struggle with sin. What is your power? Our power can only be found in the gospel. So church, we must preach the gospel to ourselves. And that's why as I've been praying and thinking through, what can I preach on? This is the most important message that we could ever preach to ourselves. And for the unbeliever, if you are here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, this message is a message of salvation for you. And my prayer is that you would take seriously the gospel message, that you would take seriously your sin before God. And for the believer, it is the motivation, the reason for which we seek to love God more and to pursue holiness. So as we look at Romans I want to lay down even more context, if you allow me that. We looked at verses 16 through 17, right? That the gospel is the power of salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed for faith, by faith. And he kind of pauses. He introduces the subject that the righteousness of God is revealed, and then he pauses. And he's going to pick that up, that same idea in chapter 3, verse 21. But for the next two chapters, he's going to tell you, saying, why that is important. Look down at verse 18. It's in your handouts, or you can follow along in your Bibles. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In verse 20, says this, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. In verses 1, 18 and following, Paul's got one mission, one job, One thing that he's trying to convince you all of, and it is this, that you stand before God as unrighteous. And if unrighteous, you stand before God guilty. And that passage that I just read, he's trying to convince the entire world, that is you and I, that we are guilty before God. 
And you see what he appeals to his creation. He says, if you look out and you see the stars and you see the moon and you see the trees and you see the mountains, they scream to you that a God exists. You know that, but you suppress that truth. In verse 18, we see that we suppress that truth because we go after our own unrighteousness, our own sin. What do we do? We love ourselves more than we love the Creator. And in verse 21, I believe it is, verse 21, they know this, but they do not honor Him as God, nor give Him thanks. And so all of mankind, from the very beginning, is unrighteous, is guilty before God. But he goes on in chapter 2, verses 15, he's trying to convince the Gentile, that's you and I, that we stand condemned. In chapter 2, verse 15, he says, They, speaking of the Gentiles, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Church, you know what he's talking about. That conscience, that your entire life, in moments of... You want to do something wrong? You feel that prick trying to convict you, convince you to do something different? Right? Kids, you know that feeling. I I tell my daughter that it's a small whisper in her mind trying to get her to do what is right. And what do we do? We suppress that. We deny that. We act in how I want to live. And that conscience bears witness. It excuses or accuses you. And in your case, it accuses you. Your conscience tells you that you're guilty before God because you're unrighteous. You're unable to keep His law. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 15, and he says, Well, what about the Jews? The Jews, after all, are the people of God, and they have the law of God written on tablets. They have the law of God throughout the Old Testament. So what about them? In two verse, chapter 2, verse 17, he says, If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Man, I love this description. Because this is the equivalent of saying, Hey, I'm a Christian. I've got the banner over my home. I've got the scripture verses on my wall. In fact, I wrote them on the floor before I laid my floor. This house is covered in scripture. That's the Jews, right? They think themselves an instructor to the blind, to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. They're so confident in the law that they possess that this law is what's going to make them righteous. And if they can seek to fulfill this law, that somehow they can be righteous. But what does he say in verse 21, chapter 2? You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What he's saying is, man, you who boast in the law, you fail to keep the law. You're not able to fulfill the law perfectly. So you, Jew, are unrighteous before God, and you stand guilty. For the, those two chapters... Paul is trying to show you why you need the righteousness of God. 
And it's because whether it's creation that condemns us or a conscience that condemns us or the law of God that condemns us, each one of us stands condemned before God. Each one of us is unrighteous before God. And if unrighteous, church, we are guilty. He brings this argument that he's making against all of mankind to a pinnacle. At chapter 3, verse 9. So if you look down in your handouts, and we're going to look at three things. As he looks at 3, 9 through 25, he sets up a court scene. You guys are all familiar with the court scene, right? I think there's like two big ones that I'm trying to follow through Yahoo News right now because I kind of love this stuff. But a court scene, and that's what he's setting up. And in this court scene, there's a charge or an indictment. There is evidence that's brought out against you. And then there's going to be a verdict that is made. And my prayer is that as I read through and work through this text, that you would see that today you're the one who's on trial. That this indictment is against you. That the evidence is brought against you. And that the verdict is brought against you. Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The first thing we're going to look at is the indictment. It's the charge. And we see that in verses 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, I, I don't necessarily like preaching bad news. <clears throat> so I kind of like dug into the Greek a little bit. I'm like, who exactly is he talking about? You know, I'm trying to weasel my way out. And so I looked up that word all, and it's the Greek word pas, which unfortunately means all. It means everyone, all of mankind. And that's exactly what he's saying by saying both the Jews and the Greeks. He's pointing to all of mankind, and he's saying all are under sin. And we see that throughout the text because seven times he uses all, no one, none, did you, did you hear that? He says, all are under sin. None is righteous. No not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. Welcome to Faith Bible Church, Menifee. <laughs> Church, there is no weaseling your way out of this. 
Every one of us, as we are confronted with the Word of God, and that's important because this is not my words. This is the Word of God. And every one of us is confronted with this reality. That He is speaking to you. And what is the charge? It is that all are under sin. Church, this is the charge that is brought against you. In this court scene, that you are under sin. You are under sin. But what does that mean? I want you to realize this, that Paul is not just simply saying, you have sinned. Like, I think that we can all get. That we can go, yes, that's true, right? Because, I mean, we're only human after all, right? We sin, we mess up. But he's not saying, man, you have simply sinned. He's saying, you are under sin. You see the preposition? Homeschool kids, you know your prepositions, right? They can denote a lot of things, but one of the things they they denote is location, He's saying, you are under sin. That sin is over you. You are under sin. Uh, You can think about this in the movie Maleficent. Kids, you guys know this movie Maleficent, right? For you older folks, it's not Maleficent, it's Sleeping Beauty. But same thing, right? Maleficent, which she comes to the king as he gives birth to his new child. And she casts a spell over Sleeping Beauty. She says that on her 16th birthday, she's going to touch a spindle. And the spindle of that spinning wheel will cause her to fall into a sleep-like death. Man, like any good father, he does exactly what I would do. Nope, don't like that. So I'm going to send my daughter away to some far-off forest. I'm going to have three little fairies watch her. And I'm going to destroy every spindle in the entire kingdom. But what happens? You know the story? Uh, Princess Aurora, on her 16th birthday, she's under the spell, and that spell compels her. It drives her. It's moving her to find her way back into the kingdom, to find the only spindle that's left in in that kingdom. And despite the fact that she knows that if she touches that spindle, it will be the end of her, that curse compels her. It drives her. It motivates her to touch that spindle. Church, you are under sin. Sin isn't just something you do on some days. Sin is what compels your life. It is what drives your life. It is what motivates your life every single day. And just like Princess Aurora, she knew it would be the end of her You follow after it. You allow it to compel you. No matter the fact that you know that one day it will be the end of you. Church, this is the charge. And it is against you and me. We are under sin. It is what compels us. It is what motivates us. It is what drives us to live in life. And this is the evidence Look down at verse 10. He says, as it is written. As it is written. Written where? In the Old Testament, right? He's pointing back to the scriptures. And he's saying that this is the evidence that you are under sin. And for the next eight verses, verses 11 through 18, he's going to point to God's word. And show us that this is the evidence that you live under sin. 
Church, as you listen to this evidence, I want to plead with you. Take an inventory of your life. You, You know your life. You know the secret moments of your life, those hidden compartments of your life. You know where you stand in moments of where you're alone. Take an inventory of your life and compare it to what he is saying here. Compare it to this evidence. Verse 10, evidence number one is going to point to our character. And it is this, the character of our life. None is righteous. No, not one. What what does it mean to be righteous? It means that we're completely innocent. That we're free from guilt. That we're free from sin. That we are morally right. And what does Paul say? He says, none is righteous. You see, that Greek verb is is in the present tense. Meaning what he's saying is that not as, not as sometimes you, you walk morally right and sometimes you're morally unright. He's saying, no, no. The manner of your life should be one such as this. That every moment, now, 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 you are righteous. That every moment, you are morally upright. Church, the character of my life apart from Christ is not that. I am not morally justifiable. I am not morally right. I am not free from guilt and shame every moment of every day. That's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 5.48. He says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that is not the character of our life. It is not one of righteousness and perfection. You see, as we read this, sometimes we think that the standard is that person that's next to us, that guy or gal who in our estimation is just a little bit worse than me. Church, that's not what God calls us to. He calls us to be morally perfect, to be righteous, to be free from guilt. And no one is righteous. He goes on to expand that no one understands And what he's saying is that no one understands this type of righteousness. And then he says, no one seeks for God. What does that mean, that we don't seek for God? It means that our direction of life is not towards God. You know, in college, I had this friend. Every time we would go hang out, go to parties, whatever, he would always meet someone new. And he'd go, hey, man, what's your story? I heard him do this like three or four times, and... I don't know, maybe that type of language is in your vocab, but it's not mine. So I always thought, man, that's a strange question to just ask somebody, what's your story? And it wasn't until years later that it kind of clicked, it kind of dawned. I realized that all of life is a story. And then that my life is a story. But you see, the problem is this, that in our story, we think I'm the main character of this story. And that all of you guys are just a side character. And that you're there to help me accomplish my agenda and my purposes. You know why? Because no one seeks after God. You see, your life is a story, but in your arrogance and pride, you think that story is supposed to be about you. In church, it is not. My life is a story, and at the center of that story is God. 
And the cry of my heart ought to be, just like John the Baptist, I must decrease and he must increase. My story ought to be about him, to put him on display. Church, but none of us seeks after God. We seek after our own our own desires, our own pleasures, our own wants, our own power. We seek to live for our kingdom. And notice what else he says. All have turned aside. This is in the active voice, meaning there is nothing that caused you to turn aside, but you willingly turned aside. That you've seen the greatness of God in creation that you've had His law written on your hearts, and that you suppress that conscience, and that you willingly turned aside. Why? Because you wanted to live for yourself. You wanted to do what you wanted to do. Because you are the person who's sitting on the throne, not God. All have turned aside to not live for His kingdom, but rather to build our own. And notice in verse 12, the resolve of this, together they have become worthless. This word means a liability to society because of our moral depravity. you get that? Like, I, I think worthless is just meaning useless, which is true. It does mean completely useless. But you're not just useless. You're a liability. Like, we got to put you out because you jeopardize the rest of us. You're worthless. You're a liability not just to society, but to God. You were created for a purpose. And God has been clear that a worthwhile life, a purposeful life, looks like this. It's not your best life today, if you're wondering. It's this, Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. Church, that's a worthwhile life. And we have turned aside. And because we have turned aside to live for our own kingdom, we have become worthless, completely useless. Verse 12, he says, No one does good, not even one. This is, this is probably one of the hardest ones, right? Because we, we get to this verse, and we want to object. No, no, that's not me. Surely I've done something good, right? Like, I baked cookies for my neighbor. I volunteer at the homeless shelter. Like, I sat down and had a meal with that homeless man. Those are all good things, right? Like, we would agree on a worldly level, it is good to bake cookies for your neighbor or for Daniel Nunez, right? Like, you can bring me cookies, preferably oatmeal raisins, anytime, and that's a good thing. Very good thing. But realize this. I said no one seeks after God, and at the very core, this is the definition of sin, To not seek after God, but rather to seek for yourself. To not live for God, but rather to live for yourself. This is the definition of sin. So I ask you, who did you bake those cookies for? Who did you go to that homeless shelter for? Who did you sit down and have that meal for? Were you doing those good things for God? Were you seeking to honor God? 
Were you seeking to glorify God in that moment? Church, if, if, if the answer is not yes, then even those good deeds are sinful deeds. That's why Isaiah 64 says that our, our good deeds are like filthy rags before Him. Why? It's because in our good deeds, we're not seeking for Him, we're seeking for our own. And that is the definition of sin. And that's why many before us have said that when we repent of sin, we, only, we not only need to repent of our bad deeds, but we must repent of our good deeds done with wrong motives. Church, no one does good. No, not one. That's the character of our life, that we are not righteous, that we are self-seeking, that we are me monsters, as Brian Regan says. It's all about me. Number two, the second evidence is our speech. Look at verse 13. Their throats is an open grave. That's to say that every word that comes out of your mouth has an aroma, has a stench of death. They use their tongues to deceive, and the venom of asp is on their lips, is under their lips. I don't know what a venom of asp is, so I had to look it up actually just... I I don't have to Google anymore because my wife is way smarter than me, so I just asked her, and she's like, oh yeah, that's the snake that killed Cleopatra. Okay. Apparently it's a viper, one of the most deadliest snakes that exist. And the venom of asp is under your lips. What Paul is saying here is your words don't just have the stench, the aroma of death. They possess death in them. That your words sting and kill. Church, this is a huge evidence against us. But notice that it speaks not only of the depravity of your words, it speaks of the depravity of your heart. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Where do these words come from? Where do these words come from? I ask my kids this all the time because you don't just simply say. You say because it's responding from your heart. It's coming from your heart. And that's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 12. That out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. Your words are full of curses and bitterness because church, your heart is full of curses and bitterness. Evidence number three. Their feet are swift to shed blood. This is speaking not just of the character of your life, not just of the words and the speech of your life, but the conduct and the actions of your life. And your feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. You know, when I read that, I, I think, man, this kind of seems like hyperbole, like really extreme language. Like, I, I, I'm a bad guy, but I haven't shed blood, Right? Like, I, I don't think I've caused misery and ruin and destruction in my life. I think this is extreme language, but the reality is it's not. You see, we, we want to lower the bar. We want to make it as something that we can attain in our own strength. But what does Christ do? He raises that bar. And in the Gospels in Matthew, he says to even have anger in your heart is to murder. Church, I have had so much anger in my heart. And if I have had so much anger in my heart, then I have caused bloodshed. That in my anger, I've caused misery and destruction. I'm not alone. The same is true for you. And you can just look at those closest to you. 
Oftentimes it's those relationships that are most closely to us that we cause in our anger, misery, and destruction. So much bloodshed. Church, this isn't extreme language that is speaking of the worst of us. This is speaking of you and I. And you know this to be true. In anger, you have caused so much bloodshed. Misery and ruin are the way of your life. In verse 17, it says, In the way of peace they have not known. That is not just peace with your fellow brothers and sisters, those on our horizontal relationships, but that's peace with God. Your manner of life is one in which you have not known that. You, so you see, we hear we have not sought after God. We have used our tongue for destruction. And we have caused so much bloodshed, so much misery, so much anger. Why? What's the motive? Look at verse 18. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Church, this is the motive. It's a deficient view of God. It's a failure to see God as holy, holy, holy. Rather, it's to fashion gods for your own liking. Or better yet, how I lived much of my life is to make myself my own God. I will live for my own self, for my own passion, for my own pleasure, for my own power. Church, this is the charge that you are under sin. And the evidence is that no one is righteous. That your tongue has been used to deceive. That the venom of asp is on your lips. That your mouth is full of bitterness and curses. And that by your actions you have been swift to shed blood. That you have caused ruin and misery. So what is the verdict? How will you plead on that day when you stand before Christ? How will you plead today? The verdict is this in Romans 3, verses 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. You see, the Bible assumes that what you want to do right now is go, yeah, but. You don't, you don't really know me. The, the Bible assumes that you want to give a defense for yourself. But you know what? When you think through that charge and the evidence, you stand before God silent. And not just silent. You stand before God guilty. Look at verse 19, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That word accountable, a better translation is guilty. You want to know why? Because when you give an account, what do you do? You're driving, you get pulled over. What does the cop ask you? You know why I pulled you over? Man, I hate that question. Now I have to give an account for everything that I did and why I did it. And man, my account is so wisely crafted that I'm hoping that he just kind of lets me off with a warning. Church, that's not what he's saying right here. You stand before God silent. And there is no giving an account hoping that you can wiggle your way out of this. You stand before God guilty. And church, you know this because look at the very next verse. 
For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law condemns you. The evidence throughout the Old Testament and the Scriptures condemn you. You stand before Him not justified. means you are guilty. Do you see how bleak and dark your situation is? In church, to make matters worse, you got to realize this. If I came down and punched Danny Moore on the face right now, some of you will be rejoicing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what would happen to me? Probably nothing, right? But it, look at him. Nothing's going to happen. No, that's not how I meant to Danny. But if I punch President Biden in the face, what would happen? Man, I bet that in the middle of that punch, I'd probably be shot down. Right? And somehow if I was able to connect, man, I would be thrown into some dark hole in the middle of nowhere. Why? It's the same crime, but different punishments. Why? Because it's the authority and power of this man is nothing like the authority and power of President Biden. And that's just the reality. Church, we have sinned in our character, in our way of life, in our speech, and in our conduct. And realize this, that as you have sinned, you have not sinned against anybody. You have sinned against the highest authority. You have sinned against the God of the universe, the one who has created heaven and earth. You have, created, you have sinned against a God that's holy, holy, holy. So what is the just punishment for a sin against a holy God? It is this. The wages of sin is death. And that's not just merely a physical death. For all men will die once. This is a second death. A spiritual death. A separation from God for all of eternity in hell. And church, that is a just punishment for sin against a holy, holy, holy God. So what hope is there? Well, you got to come back in two weeks to hear that. No, I'm, I'm joking. I'm, I'm going to give you the hope, but in all honesty, you're going to have to come back in two weeks. <clears throat> and the reason why Paul has labored for two chapters and in this section to convince us of our sin to show us that all of us stand guilty before God. It is this, until sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. Listen, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And so my hope is that you see the bitterness of your sin so that as you look at the gospel, you see the sweetness of Christ's life. Look at Romans 3, verses 21. But now... Man, what beautiful words. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Church, if you hear nothing, hear this. Your heart is in bondage to sin. All your deeds are unrighteous. And true and perfect righteousness is not found in trying a little harder. True and perfect righteousness is not found in your performance, but here in your one and only true hope. 
True and perfect righteousness is found in the provision of God. That He would send His Son to live that perfect life that you can never live and to die the death that you deserve. And that righteousness, it is given to all who in faith believe in Jesus Christ. And my prayer is today, if you don't believe, if you don't have faith, my prayer is this, that you would see your sin before a holy, holy, holy God. And that you would confess your sin and that you would put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. And if you are here today, my prayer is that we would praise God for His provision. Praise God that is not based on my performance. You remember the story in Luke where a lady takes costly oil and anoints Jesus before He goes to the cross? And his disciples are baffled. Why would she spend this costly oil to wash your feet? What does Jesus say? She has loved much because she was forgiven much. Church, do you see how much you have been forgiven? Do you see how much you have been forgiven? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And we are so humbled. Father, we are humbled because we understand the charge against us. That we have lived our entire life under sin. And that it has been demonstrated. And that we have sought our own. That we have used our tongues to deceive and to destroy others. That our actions have been quick to shed blood that we have brought about misery and destruction. Father, we are so humbled by our sin. And we are humbled not just because of the indictment and the charge and the verdict, but Father, we are humbled because Your Son became those things. That He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Father, we are humbled that we can come before You. That we can stand in Your presence, not because of our performance, but because of Your provision. Because of Your Son. Father, I pray that the reality, that the truth of the Gospel would compel us to love You more with all our heart, mind, and soul. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.